listening to West of Middle East, a podcast about Middle Eastern changemakers living in the West. I'm your host, Niaz Kastravi. In season two, we feature changemakers working in and around the field of education, be it through traditional academia, technology, the arts, advocacy, or movement building. Each episode shines a spotlight on changemakers doing everything from the ordinary to the extraordinary, humanizing their triumphs and struggles and offering a more real narrative of who they are to counter the often sensationalized and misconceived portrayals of these communities in mainstream media. West of Middle East is produced by the Neda Nobari Foundation, an organization supporting social and environmental justice through the arts and education. Language is perhaps the most powerful of our communications tools. The words we use to describe things influence our thoughts and our actions. There's also a deep and intimate connection between language and culture. In fact, in order to truly understand any culture, one can argue that we must understand the language through which that culture is conveyed. So learning a language isn't simply learning how to read the letters, pronounce the words, and form sentences. It involves learning a society's customs and cultural norms. To explore this relationship between language and culture, we sit down with Dr. Danny Duery, a Lebanese-American associate professor in the Department of World Languages and Literature at Cal State University San Bernardino. Dr. Duery is the co-founder of Islamicity, or Islam.org, the earliest Islamic website on the net. He's also developed the only bachelor's program in Arabic in the Cal State University system as a way to help students examine global events with an understanding of Arab culture. Danny came to the U.S. at the age of 18 during the civil war in Lebanon, mostly because of his parents' concern for his safety. Remembering how I came to the United States almost 32 years now, I um, always reflect and I say, I wonder if that was uh, the right decision, and I'm very thankful today, looking back at it. Of course, at the time, I was just uh, finishing my teenage years, and uh, there were many factors that, uh, that made me come here. My parents were very worried about me. I had done... I lived during the Civil War, which started in Lebanon in 75. So first, from 8 to 18, about 10 years, I've seen it firsthand. Like any Lebanese, regardless of their religious or ethnic background, we've all suffered from uh, human loss, from family, friends. Uh, we've also seen our fair share of bombs. There were many things that happened in my childhood that made my parents a little bit worried, other than losing members of the family. I still remember in 82, I was in Holland. My parents had took me to Holland because there was an invasion of Beirut, the Israeli invasion. And at that time, there was a massacre in Sabra and Shatila. And so I, I ran away from Holland, left a note for my uncle, and I said, mm, coming back, I, I want to help my community. A few years later, about two years later, I had a friend, a school friend, who she was of Christian descent, who was kidnapped. I would just would go all over, uh, just try to to find her and and bring her back to her mom, 
her dad had passed away. She was kidnapped with her brother and uncle, actually. So, and then about a year later, there was an effort in Lebanon to bring all Lebanese together, and um, nobody went there, but I went by myself under bombs. So there were a series of events that um, gave indication to my parents that I'm not going to stay too quiet. Uh, in time of war, you have got to active, you have to be engaged. So they said, you know, it's time for you to leave. And I can, I don't remember the night of, of leaving. I know exactly when it was uh, the 31st, so it was New Year's. Uh, of 2000, uh, of 1985. Uh, so I spent my New Year's on, on the air, in the plane. But later on, my parents said that uh, I was so emotional at the airport that people were crying on my cry. So it was, like we say in Arabic, uh, like you skin an animal. It was a very painful experience. Looking back at it today, I'm, I'm very glad that I made it here and um, look forward to helping both my community and also being a part of the American experience. But Danny stays connected with his country and his people. I go back in two ways. I go once a year to visit my parents and my friends. And I go every day, not only by listening to the news, but being engaged with the educational community of the Middle East. So I do consult. I've done consulting in the United Arab Emirates in Bahrain. I've gone, done many projects. In, we've done it in Egypt, uh, Syria, Sudan, Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon. Though I am physically here, my heritage is not something that is forgotten. Danny's pursuit of education wasn't merely happenstance. For certain communities, you don't have a choice for higher education. It's just like you have to drink, you have to wear your clothes, you go to higher education. I came from very educated family. I had my uncle who had his doctorate degree back in the 50s. He was a Supreme Court judge. I have two judges in my family, five lawyers. I've always joked that I could commit any crime and still get away with it. And my mom and dad were both educated. My mom became a lawyer. She was a teacher for many years and became a lawyer. And my father worked, uh, studied history, though he ended up working in agriculture. So uh, higher education was always part of my family culture. Um, We lived it, always was surrounded with books. Um, And unlike the stigma or the expectation in certain Middle East countries and sometimes other culture where you're either going to go into medicine or engineering or you become nothing, my parents really left it up to me to choose a career that I would want or even a higher education, a major that I want. And so I came to California And I studied the agricultural development. That was um, something dear to me to be able to help the farmers back in Lebanon. Like many kids who grew up in a time of war, Danny's experience in Lebanon is rife with dangerous situation and circumstances that he was lucky enough to escape. He tells me of two of these incidents. The first is when he was kidnapped. I recall many traumatic part of my life and and being kidnapped at a checkpoint uh, in a divided city that would be Beirut uh, is always something I look back. For many years, I couldn't talk about it. I would uh, immediately, my voice would start shaking and I would cry and and I blocked it for many years. It was one of the tragedies that happened in any civil war when um, a divided community starts uh, kidnapping the innocents on both sides because militias did not kill each other. Uh, The innocents were, were always the prime victim, the most sizable victim. Beirut was divided into two parts. One part that was predominantly 
how would you say controlled by militias uh, under the label under the label it's it's very important i think they were disgraced to christianity but under the label of christians and the other side had the more secular and under also the label of muslims and left wing and i lived on west beirut so that was more the mixed one and once we went to east beirut and on the way back from east beirut to west beirut we just had about a one and a half gallon of gasoline gasoline we used to bring it just to be able to run a generator and study under it to have some light and at the checkpoint they accused me and my father at the time uh, that uh, you're trying to sell five liters which is one and a half gallon of gasoline in the black market and you know we laughed <laughs> how much could you sell one and a half gallon of gasoline so the person of course opened the door and then he took the gallon and um, silly me in front of my father i made a little gesture with my hand that i didn't like what he was doing and that was the time when he said well you know you don't like what i'm doing well come down with me he opened the door my door and then took me dragged me to a place where other people have been kidnapped and stripped me almost down to to my underwear and then cocked a gun put it on my head and you know wanted to to shoot me and he said what am i going to do with you and this is the time when uh you know I had to beg for my life it was hard for me to talk about these stories not anymore i'm a father now I'm, i think about how traumatic it was on my father to see his own son being dragged in front of his own eyes and not being able to do anything and many years later i tried to talk to my father because i don't remember how long it lasted i don't know if it was 2 hours 3 hours 5 hours i i really have a mental block over it so i wanted to know a little bit with my dad and I talked to my dad once and barely when I opened it I saw him becoming very emotional so I um I stopped the conversation and uh, you know uh, 35 years later I still don't know what happened uh, to him I know what happened to me The other experience involves a risk Danny took as a child to send a message of peace to the warring factions within Lebanon I remember begging for my life and crying a lot and I don't know what my father had done as i told you i couldn't find the details but um a few hours later um they said well you're free to go and um of course i was very thankful because you hear as as part of a person who lived in war you hear about the torture that goes around sometimes the long term um uh, detention that you go through sometimes you're swapped with other people on the other side who have also kidnapped other people um my friend who was kidnapped um for 35 years actually her mom had passed away a uh, few years ago and she was one of the longest uh, parent who had for 35 years never heard about what happened to her own daughter and her son so maybe more than 25 or 30,000 Lebanese went missing and i could have very easily been one of these statistics i always try to remember and i'm still trying to find the exact year and date when an event happened in lebanon when the lebanese uh, people on both sides said enough of this war enough of this uh, uh, play the theater let's get back together and then hug each other and they decided at the time to come on a red um, it's a very dangerous street that divided east beirut from west beirut this is where people typically who were crossing uh would usually get sniped on actually i lost two of my cousin who were trying to help people who were killed on that very d- dangerous uh, line so at one point in time the lebanese said let's get together hug each other and then get a, bring an end to the war 
And everybody was excited. The media was talking about it. TV was talking about it. We all got ready. The night before, somebody from one of the both sides started bombing the other side, and the other side fired back. So that demonstration got canceled. Not demonstration, but that show of love and peace. Uh, I woke up, I still remember, at about 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning, got a banner, put it on a stick, uh, put peace now, um, and put a red flower and walked there. I still remember my English was very bad. So I wrote peace, P-I-E-C-E, instead of P-E-A-C-E, because my education was French, not, not English. And I walked by myself, just praying to God that nothing will ha happen to me. And I went, you know, waited there for two and a half hours before people started walking. Some people, you know, wished me well. Some people said, I wish all Lebanese were there. And some people made fun of me, said, you know, you're still dreaming in another world. And I still remember at that time the media came and covered me. My brother who was in the United States saw me on CBS News um, in San Diego. Um, and I sat a couple of hours, just made my presence On, at the edges of both sides, there were people on both sides uh, coming, but they never came to where I was sitting or standing to hug each other. So um, it was maybe an, an indication that maybe the Lebanese people were not ready. And we really went for war for another six years before it, or maybe six, seven years. I don't recall the exact year until it was officially over in 1990. I asked them whether at that age he knew the kind of risk he was taking. I have first-hand experience. My, my two cousins died there, and a lot of people, this is a daily action of people who die on that street. You're warned every single day not to cross unless you have a special permit on that street. Uh, but at one point in time, you're, you're a child. You don't think about the responsibilities. You don't think about, I didn't have children. I was not married. I was, didn't have anything to lose. I just went... And I still remember going back and even some of my friends said, this is uh, silly to, for you to do such a thing, not only from a dangers, but they said, did you see the other side? It's like, let's forget about my side and your side. Let's just come and dialogue and hug each other and then really move forward. There's time in life when you just have got to move forward and um, forgive and, and be willing to embrace the other and say, there's much more in common for all of us of what we aspire. So let's just move on and... And, and, and really bring peace to the overall well-being of the community. I asked Danny what impact his Muslim faith has had on his work, especially in a time of heightened Islamophobia and the all-too-common misconceptions of Muslims and people of the Middle East in the media. The fact that I'm of a Muslim origin, and I do identify myself as a Muslim and an active Muslim um, in the community, uh, does not put me in any um, ideological uh, belief or conviction that I am any superior or better by faith or by anything than my, my fellow humans, regardless of their faith or colors. Um, the more you get exposed to other systems, uh, political or ideological system, the more you see how common we have, how much more in common we have than we have differences. So while as a Muslims, I am always uh, encouraged to, to embrace other people, I also uh, extend my hand to those who have extended their own hands to me. Um, I really, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my Islamic heritage, but does not mean that I looked any different of, of my brothers in humanity 
regardless if they associate themselves with the faith or no faith at all. Uh, they are my brothers and uh, and uh, and sisters, of course, and uh, will progress and then will 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 bring uh, harmony in this very um, fragile global village today. In December of 2015, a mass shooting in San Bernardino left 15 people dead and 22 more seriously injured. In the aftermath, Danny was involved in helping the community come together and heal. It's an experience that left him wondering what else we can be doing to protect the community and also to prevent those who would commit these mass shootings from reaching that point. The December shooting at San Bernardino impacted me and, of course, our community, but it impacted me in in many ways. First of all, the the shooter was my student. Um, He was my student five years before he committed that uh, that crime. he was of what he claims to be a Muslim, and and he is what he is. And I am a Muslim. Um, I'm also an activist and an educator. So at that point in time, I was asked to address the community. And you, it, it, when you're hurting, you have to be uh, sensitive. You have to be honest. You have to be bold. Um, how could you talk to people who have just lost, you know, their parents or their children, uh, their friends? And especially these people were caregivers. Uh, they were part of uh, the, the health uh, field, giving probably help to some of the most disadvantaged community in San Bernardino. Um While you offer condolences and you say, not in my name, not in my religion's name, not in my community's name, you look at also these victims, you look at these criminals, actually, and you say they were also victims. Today, when I look at the shooting that is happening in the United States, I don't only look at the victims as victims, but sometimes what have we done as educators? Not to educate or care for those who at one point in time turned the wrong way and carried arms and then killed the innocents. And this is when you start reflecting to say, was there an extra lecture that I should have given that I turned down? Uh, was there an extra hour I could have stayed with a student to, to answer certain questions who came pleading to, to tell his or her story? And you said, no, maybe I should go back to my family at home. Uh, you start thinking whether well, research or some statistics I should have done um, that could have made a change. Um, and, and that was my message. Um, as classes get bigger, funding for education go lower, goes lower, uh, more budget goes for our military expenditures. We say, where have we gone wrong? Why are we... What made us criminalize so many people who should not have been in the jail but should have been in schools? How can we spend more money in, in, in the incarceration than for education? Maybe one-tenth of the price of the budget that we put on people who may not have been or should not have been criminalized at one point in time. So it was very, very hard. Um, plus all the, <laughs> all of the, uh, how should I say, threats that you get uh, because of your own background. Uh, but we went, we held, um, you know, each other's hands and um, we, we addressed our needs uh, together as, as a mourning community. 
In the recent and not-so-recent history of America, people of the Middle East, Southwest Asia, and North Africa seem to always be caught in the crossfire of political developments between the U.S. and their country of origin. This reality is highly palpable today, given the very strict, and some would rightfully argue racist stance that the U.S. is taking towards the governments and people from that part of the world. Danny shares with me some of the tools he uses to combat anti-Muslim stereotypes. There's a lot of stereotypes and Islamophobia these days, and um, education is a very powerful tool, uh, but it's a very slow tool, and it's a very careful tool. And whenever you are in this field, you have got to understand who you're addressing. Um, Addressing big classes is different than small classes, different learners, different ages. Um... I've always found humor to be humor, but meaningful humor, um, to be very effective, especially in addressing very um, sensitive topics. Um, If you were going to talk about something very sad for two hours, um, it's depressing enough and our students have enough things to worry about that at one point in time, you want to just block it and say, no, how could this happen? But when you bring humor in it, uh, when you engage them, they are laughing. But at one point in time, they have these few minutes or few seconds when they're crying um, and feel it to touch them. Another one of the strategies that really works as educators is is to give everybody um, an authentic experience. If you're worried about stereotypes, um, it's most of the time due to people's ignorance and lack of knowledge um, of, of the other. So... Instead of giving them a book of 500 pages and scholarly articles and say, go ahead, read them. I remember reading all of these, taking an exam and walking away and never learning or forgetting most of what I've learned. But I still do not remember, I I still cannot forget the days when I would go to a restaurant and then eat the cultural food or hug somebody or go on a field trip. So these, what they call in education, high-impact practices are very important. And uh, meeting the others, whether students who are not necessarily Muslims, to meet a Muslim or somebody who's a student, who's a Muslim student, to go and then meet people of other faith or people with no specific faith and say, look, let's talk and let's uh, tell me about your experience. And then coming back to class and then share their experiences and then write about what they've gone. Um, I make students uh, wear Islamic clothes, uh, what Muslims do when they go on pilgrimage or wear hijab and then go back home and then tell their boyfriends or spouses or things, you know, well, today I'm a Muslim. What, what, what do you think about that? And they come back and then share their experiences. And it's, it's wonderful just to see how the other now suddenly looks like this is my brother or this is my boyfriend who suddenly has a beard and wants to become a Muslim or this is my daughter who's wearing a hijab, you know. And then she would say how, how firsthand she would experience uh, the other from her own and then come share it. It's, it's a very empowering experience and very authentic and very lasting experience that could speak for this half an hour much more than you would read in a whole book. Danny is somewhat of a pioneer in his field, helping develop the first-of-its-kind Arabic studies program in the entire Cal State University system. True to form, he describes the creation of the program as a collaborative effort. The journey to start 
the first Arabic language program in the CSU system, which happened to be the largest public university in the United States, roughly 480,000 students and 23 campuses, about 24,000 faculty. We developed, uh, we developed it at San Bernardino, which is interestingly not a place where there is a lot of Arabs. Um, we are not Los Angeles, we're not San Francisco, we're not uh, New York, uh, we're not Detroit. And always people say, how did you manage to have one of the largest Arabic programs actually in the United States? And while I was for many years the face of the Arabic program, and I get more credit than I deserve, it is really the effort and the opportunities and the circumstances that, um, that got all together with the hard work and the vision of many people behind the scenes, some of them public, some of them not public, to really make it happen. Um, we always talk about the famous actors and directors. We sometimes forget the great producers who make great films um, <laughs> happen because they have the vision, but they never get the credit for it. Um, so for the Arabic program at Cal State, um, I had the support all the way from people from the Congress who wanted to fund some, some programs. Um, I had a university president who had passed away now, who was an Armenian person, but when he became a refugee, he ended up in Syria, then Lebanon. And he always uh, remembered how Arabs hosted him and his family. And then before he came to France and then later on to the United States. So you have a lot of people who at one point in time were in some form of communication or relationship, meaningful relationship with the others as people west of the Middle East, or at the time the Middle East, um, who had this very positive experience, plus the knowledge and the wisdom that it's most important to be proactive, um, to make it happen, to fund it, to fund the exceptions, and, and, and let it grow. So it took a lot of work and it took a lot of creativity uh, to find uh, funding for it too. Um, but at the end, you dream, you plan, you work hard, and it pays off. But how he got the job to become the head of the program is as much a result of his hard work as it is of the right timing. People sometimes study about language policies in the United States, and it's a very interesting history of language policies. Whenever United States went into crisis, then certain languages with countries that we were in conflict with, suddenly these um, languages would find a spike. So if we are in the Cold War, suddenly we're going to study a lot of Russians. Then the Cold War is over, then we forget about Russian. When we started Arabic at, at Calce San Bernardino, it was a little bit opposite. After 9-11, many Arabic programs sprouted, really mushrooms all over the United States. On our campus, the decision to offer Arabic was before 9-11. And so before even I was present on campus, the university had decided that it is very important to study the culture and communicate and understand the Arab people. So there was a decision to offer classes. And unfortunately, 9-11 happened. And it's a funny story because the person who was recruited to teach Arabic at Calcis San Bernardino never showed up. We don't know what happened. Nobody knows what happened. So they were very desperate on getting any person because classes were going to start a few days later and there was no teacher. And out of desperation, I think somebody picked up the phone and called me and said, would you like to teach? And I came all prepared with my resume, 
ready for the interview. And the department said, said yeah, you speak Arabic? I said, yes. Uh, he said, well, you were a little bit uh, recommended. I said, do you want to interview me? He said, no, absolutely, you're hired tomorrow. So it was probably one of the easiest um, um, experiences I had. And, I, and I'm going to share something um, that is very unique. At the time, I was working in a nonprofit organization, and I still volunteer with them. But 9-11 happened, and there were some funding issues. So I still remember before getting the call to go for the interview, I opened my resume, and I took Arabic out. And I put French. At the time, we were 9/11 had happened, and we were in great fear to ever get a job if you knew Arabic. This is how how sad it is. Um, but I remember um, Neda Nobari, who's who's the founder of the foundation itself, who says when she was in San Francisco, also um, she did not want to talk about her Iranian heritage. She talked about her Turkish, uh, just because she was scared how people are going to do it. At the time, I had a small family of my wife and one child, and I was really scared I needed to provide. And I hid my Arabic. Shamefully, I should not have done that. Today, I would never, ever do such a thing. But I hid my Arabic because I needed to go get a job. Um, I still remember on Word document, I took Arabic, put French, got the call, then reopened my resume, put Arabic, took French out, and I came for the position. And it's been now almost two decades. Danny realizes the significance of the program and the work he leads at the university. In 2016, Danny received two major teaching awards. One, the Golden Apple Award for Teaching Excellence, and the other, the Faculty of the Year Award for Advising. I asked him how this recognition made him feel. I have mixed feelings about it. <laughs> One, I, I am very humbled and um, honored to receive such an award. Um, but it puts added uh, responsibility on you. Um, I was hoping that I didn't have to stay till 11 o'clock at night advising more students or coming on the weekends, picking up calls at 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, now, if you have that label on you, uh, you have to live up to, to the expectations. Um, I also recognize that I am one of many people who were recognized, but other people who may not have been recognized as outstanding professors do exist. Um, there are outstanding staff, teachers, human beings around you uh, that do their work silently. They're not noticed, but they are as genuine as any person who gets an award. And while I feel humbled and honored for that, I want to always know that I am no unique than any person who has been committed to the field of education and the very hard working people who, who continue their very hard and dedicated and selfless work unnoticed. Um, so I'm an example of the many and not unique in any way. Danny places great importance on the role of mentoring his students. He feels that the human connection of getting to know your students or your professor as a human being, as a person, is a big part of learning. Advising is so critical to our students. And my experience 
without mentioning which schools I've went through, but I went through many state schools and some of them were teaching oriented and some of them were research oriented. And I still remember getting more of more attention from my advisor and a teaching orienting oriented school than research oriented schools, because understandably in research and focused schools, some teachers do not have the time to really, really mentor you and hear you as a human being rather than somebody who could do so much research and then end up publishing in a lab or in a library. So I've always taken advising to heart. To see the students, even in an online class, I make sure to see my students, it's a requirement, and even in an online class to say, I need to see you at least twice a year, uh, at least per, twice per quarter, to see who you are. Come tell me your story. Tell me why your eyes are red. Did you not have a good night's sleep? Did you not eat enough? Once you touch students as humans instead of a number in a class, because a class is low enrolled and you need another student body for the class to go, once you look at the students as really human with whom you have a lot to learn from before you start teaching them, the experience changes. And honestly, from an educational point of view, um, students who get motivated once they feel respected and valued are far more likely to learn and put so much more hours studying and researching, sometimes to please you, sometimes to just do better because they want to please you and please other people. We don't do it for them to please us. We want them to really learn and progress. But once you put that, that seed, a good seed, and implant it in them to say, you can do it. And if you have any challenges, let us know how we can help uh, because you're working a lot, let me see if I can give you an incomplete and let you finish it during the break. Once you address these personal needs, um, the reward is much higher. And, and that's why I put great emphasis on, on my children. And sometimes my wife says, why do you call your student children? They are our children, of course. Some are your biological you know, children and others are just your natural human children. They are my children by humanity, and we are entrusted to take care of them. I'm told by his colleagues that Danny is one of the most beloved teachers on campus. Sometimes um, I feel bad uh, advising students and so many students uh, because they take the whole hallway. Um, I'm not joking to tell you that uh, every year I end up going to Chinatown and I pick about uh, anywhere between 5 to 15 small chairs so that when students line up outside my office, I just let them line up because I don't want them to sit on the floor and blocking the way for other faculty who are uh, walking the hallways. Um, uh, when you start advising, not based on time, but based on needs, you understand that uh, students need more than that um, six-minute doctor's appointment that you usually see in a medical doctor. Sometimes you have to spend time with students 15 minutes, half an hour, one hour, and then many follow-ups afterwards. Sometimes you're going to have to take a walk with the students, uh, refer them to a researcher, and uh, maybe somebody who could be a mentor in their writing, sometimes to a therapist, sometimes to a medical doctor. Sometimes you're going to have to go to a grocery store and pick up some food for them. I don't know how many students I've advised in the past 17 years, but at any point in time, in a quarter, a couple of hundreds are, are easily. 
uh, on my office hours, all easily will have 15 to 25 students just waiting. And I really feel bad. So you have to have your office hours and then you have, uh, well, we'll see you by appointment only. Um, and today we are in the 21st century. You don't only advise by, by seeing people. You advise through text messages and Instagrams and WhatsApp. And you advise by phones and by referring other people. Um, the whole dynamics and uh, expectations of advising has really changed. Uh, sometimes it's referring them to something or sometimes it's um, giving them an electronic support instead of just physical support. Um, but the more you get involved with these students and the more you, you value them and appreciate who they are and where they come from, the more they start producing papers and works that are really impacting people from around the world. Uh, I'm involved in a literacy project um, just to bring books electronic books for people all over the world to make them free. And this, it takes a lot of time to go through the books and catalog them and make activities around them. And I'm so happy when I see students from San Bernardino, a city that is known for its poverty, for its crime, for lots of challenging, for, for more holes in the streets. It's one of the highest, uh, poorest uh, roads in the United States in San Bernardino. But these students who at one point in time decided to study Arabic and became so motivated are making an impact and producing research and work that is being published electronically and benefiting an Arab student all the way from Morocco to Sudan to Iraq or New York or South Africa or Australia or Canada studying Arabic. What an honor for all of us to hold hands and say we are a global community. We have so much more to share. And even, even among the most challenged communities, we will be able to produce great works, not necessarily from Cairo, a capital of education and literature, but from San Bernardino, where sometimes drive-by shooting is more common than, um, <laughs> than some... Um, countries that the State Department put them on your warning list where you cannot go visit them. And this is why it is so important to advise and, and listen to your students and make a change in their lives because they're going to make changes in other people's lives and outside their community. Danny believes that education is a powerful tool in dispelling stereotypes and moving our society towards progress. I cannot emphasize enough the important role of education in fighting uh, stereotypes and advancing social justice causes um, that then education could do. It is just so critical for us to invest in education and make a change one at a time. It's a difficult process. It's a lengthy process. It's a timely process. It's demanding, exhausting sometimes frustrating. Sometimes you go into bureaucracies and reports and you say, no, I want to be in the field. But it is so important um, to invest in our educational system to change. And I hate cliches, but there's this <laughs> famous cliche about education. It says, if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. And we've seen it, how our budgets and how our political theater nationwide is happening. Um, we have got to educate so that we can produce the new generation 
who could go back and then reclaim our value system, uh, reclaim our political system, reclaim justice, uh, reclaim and save this world. We can no longer afford um, to be responsible um, leaders anymore. Um, truly, the entire globe is a threat. Humanity is a threat. And if we do not solve it by starting with education, I don't know what other pathway is a better investment than to produce responsible citizens. Reflecting on his own experience and that of others from the Middle East, Danny says, People should really study about the experience of people west of the Middle East because we have so much more in common as humanity than, than we have differences. I could think of so many examples, and one comes to mind is um, a former student about eight years ago, Carlos. Say, Carlos, what in the world, wh why are you studying Arabic? You speak great English, you speak Spanish, why are you studying Arabic? He looked at me, he said, Professor Dewey, I'm going to tell you a story. I said, what? He said, when I was three years old, I needed a heart transplant. And my heart came from a little child who's an immigrant from Egypt. I'm an American, Latino, half-white, but my heart is Arab. And I couldn't say anything. I couldn't tell him, why are you studying anymore? Ten years now later, I learned that, or eight years later, he needs a kidney transplant. Where will this new child be who's going to give him a kidney transplant? Will that child be from India or Morocco or China? We don't know. Once we learn how unique we are, we just enrich our life and impact ourselves in ways that are together much more powerful than if we were to be stuck and comfortable with our familiar surrounding. There is this synergetic effect that is so enriching when we learn about people of other communities. I go to Lebanon sometimes, and I've been, of course, I mean, I go once a year, but I see the new generation, and I see that a person from Lebanon is much closer to my son in the United States or any child from California than I am to that child because through social media and technology and the Internet, they are so much unified in what they value. So although we are physically separated by regions or identified by regions, the new generation is, has so much more to learn from each other because they come all together with such an understanding of what they value. A few years ago, there was a study that showed that overall youth is less religious but youth around the world are more spiritual. So do not identify necessarily with a religion, but they are much more caring about the future of our planet than we think they are. And that is the beauty of humanity. You look at it from space and you say, if we only could hold hands and make this planet just a greener and more peaceful place. Danny's story shows us the importance of language and creating human connections and helping us gain a deeper, more real understanding of cultures, especially those that are often misportrayed in the media. And though we may not all be able to study a different language, 
we all certainly have the capacity to connect with other human beings on a one-on-one, more personal level. And that sure beats getting to know people just by what we see on TV or read in the media. You've been listening to West of Middle East. You can hear more episodes about changemakers from the Middle East diaspora at westofmiddleeast.org or check us out on iTunes. If you like what you heard, please rate us on iTunes. This podcast is created by the Neda Nobari Foundation, an organization supporting social and environmental justice through the arts and education. Our engineer is Rick McRae of Conscious Studios. Music is composed by Loga Ramin Torquion and Azam Ali. And I'm your host, Niaz Kasravi. If you want to share your thoughts about this podcast or have ideas for future seasons, email us at comments at westofmiddleeast.org. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time.